Let's turn now in our Bibles to the book of Acts, the ninth chapter. Book of Acts, the ninth chapter, and actually we will read the first 22 verses of the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Let us bow in prayer. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask that the Spirit of the Lord who has given this text and all of your word by divine inspiration will now illumine its page to our understanding and that you would work within us a deep and abiding faith in Christ alone for our redemption and salvation and that those among us who do not know you at all may come to believe in Christ through the effectual calling of the Spirit of God. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The book of Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you, On the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man 
who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now let's begin by stressing, as we have been on these Sunday evenings, that the Christian faith is based upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We are not proclaiming simply that he is risen in the proclamation of the church or that he is simply raised in what is called Easter faith, that he is emotively raised for us, but that the same body that was placed in the tomb came out of the tomb. Though glorified body, a true, real body. He was physically raised and he was glorified. Deniers of the gospel throughout history have seen that they must attack the twin pillars of Christianity, the resurrection accounts in the gospels, and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus as found in this chapter and two others in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, these two things come together. The resurrection accounts, the conversion of Saul. Now the question to ask is, what changed Paul and what does this mean for us? So let's begin by recounting who this Saul of Tarsus was. That's first. Who was this Saul of Tarsus, this man we call Paul? Well, he was a devoutly religious Pharisee and a scholar. And as a Pharisee and a scholar, he was a leader of men. This man, Paul, all you really have to do is read the epistles to know this, that he had a massive intellect. He was a man of books and a man of action. He saw no dichotomy between those things. He was an incredible individual. A.T. Robertson, the great New Testament scholar, said, If Paul went astray, he has led the world after him. Think of the men who have drunk at his fountain. Think of those who have been influenced by Paul the Apostle. I am bold to say that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, there is no other man that has so influenced world history more greatly, more profoundly for good than Paul the Apostle. Saul became the leading interpreter of Christ in his various epistles in the New Testament and the great missiologist, apologist, and theologian of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a devoutly religious Pharisee and scholar, we also need to take into consideration his ancestry and his religious fervor. You'll recall how the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. That's who Paul was. This man who was born in Tarsus, in Turkey, as he tells us in Acts 22, which was a university town of great significance in his day. He was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. He was a strict Pharisee, and yet at the same time he was cosmopolitan and a Roman citizen. Urbane, knowledgeable, indeed, and intellectual. He was the student of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel. And in Acts 26, he tells us, After the straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. In other words, being a Pharisee was his life. It didn't simply influence him on the fringe, but it determined his heart's commitment. He was a Pharisee from his very deepest being. Yet he had a Greek side as well in his training. He knew Hebrew, 
He knew Aramaic. He knew Greek, wrote beautiful Greek in the New Testament. And he knew enough Latin to defend himself in the Roman courts. This was a very brilliant man indeed. And a cosmopolitan individual, though a strict Pharisee at the same time. But for our purposes as well, we need to note that this devoutly religious Pharisee and scholar was a persecutor of Christianity. I mean, we begin here in chapter 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that is to say Christians, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was not, he was not satisfied to persecute Christians in Jerusalem, but he would go to the outer reaches in order to find Christians that he might <clears throat> persecute them. Persecute them. Saul raged against Christ. Indeed, verse 21 of chapter 9 can read, he mauled Christians. In Galatians, it says that he wreaked havoc on the church of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, that very important passage on the resurrection, the apostle said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Here in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says that Paul was breathing murderous threats. The word that is used there is the word of the snorting of beasts. Slaughter was his very breath. A.T. Robertson puts it this way, like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. That was Paul the Apostle and how he hated the church of Jesus Christ. So let's sum this theme up and let's ask a question. Here we have a Pharisee, well-educated, urbane, a scholar, moral and upright so that his morality actually led him to be a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ because he believed in doing so. He was being moral. He was following the law of God and that he was doing God a favor. Now here he is at the height of his ability, the height of his career, and the height of his zeal in persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, and he's changed. He's changed from a persecutor into a loving, humble follower of Jesus Christ. Now I ask you the question, why? Explain to me the Apostle Paul. Explain the change. And it was a sudden change. The evidence of the epistles is that he was not coming closer to Christianity, but the reverse. In the 19th century, there was a kind of romantic view of Paul that the liberals had. Well, the Apostle Paul came to this conviction about Jesus because over time he was under moral conviction and the conviction was weighing him down and so finally he had this turn. But if you read the epistles, you find that no such Paul existed. The Apostle Paul was not coming closer to Christianity. He was going farther from Christianity. He hated Christ. He hated the gospel. He hated the good news of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And yet he was suddenly transformed and changed. Now reckon with this. What changed Saul of Tarsus? Well, the New Testament tells us that Paul was changed by meeting the risen Christ as he was going to persecute Christians in Damascus. So that leads us to the second thing we want to see. Saul meets the risen Christ. Let's read again from verses 3 to 5. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul saw the risen Christ. He was confronted with the risen Lord. At noon, a light brighter than the noon sun, he tells us in Acts 26, flashed. Actually, the Greek word is flashed. Yet, this was the blinding light of the presence of the risen Son of God. And in that flash, he saw the risen Jesus Christ. And he heard the voice as well. The Greek New Testament actually retains the Aramaic. Saul, 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 Timé, Diokes, why do you persecute me, Saul? Why do you persecute me? And it's Paul's consistent testimony in Acts 9, in Acts 22, in Acts 26, in verse 17 of this chapter, verse 27 of this chapter, chapter 22, 14, 26, 16, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that Paul saw the risen Christ. Well, let's ask that question. Did he see Jesus? Did he see the risen Christ? In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, the Apostle Paul says, Last of all, he appeared to me. And lest you think that that simply means something visionary, something that wasn't corporeal, something that wasn't the real physical risen Christ, that won't do. The term opthe that is used when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 is the same word for the appearance of Christ Jesus to the apostles and others after the resurrection, including the 500 at one time, which was the physical appearance of Christ. Luke uses the same word in Luke 24. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Paul says he saw Jesus. So what's the explanation? What's the explanation? Did Paul invent the story? Well, of course, that's impossible. His orthodox religious commitment would not allow for such a thing. He wouldn't lie. His subsequent life could not be sustained by such an invention. We looked at 2 Corinthians 11 last week, and we saw the the torment, really, that he endured for the sake of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some have grasped at straws. They have said, well, the Apostle Paul had an epileptic fit. Others, however, were aware of the light and the voice. Paul was no man to be duped by hallucination. Paul's career sustained by such a cobweb as this? No, no, Paul was a rational man. And this is a desperate measure on the part of those who want to do away with the resurrection of Jesus. No, no, the only explanation that is, that is rational is that he met the risen Lord. Now, I know that you cannot simply convince someone that Jesus rose from the dead, but this you can do. You can show to the unbeliever that his views about the resurrection not taking place are irrational. And I want to say to you, on the basis of all we've been, we've been saying on these past Sunday nights, but now as we look at Paul also, that it is irrational not to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It was totally unexpected, and there he was, face to face, with the risen Lord. Now consider this, Paul's whole life's presuppositions are challenged in a moment. In verses 4 and 5, falling to the ground, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
He didn't say, wait a minute, you don't understand. I'm a Pharisee. I can't, I can't listen to you. I can't do this. Uh, he would have continued persecuting Jesus perennially if he could. But Saul has no doubt who it is who is before him that he sees with his own eyes and hears with his own ears. And Paul calls him Lord. And his whole theology is here in a nutshell in his conversion. Saul surrenders, and there is a total change. In verse 6 we read, Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And he is obedient to that. It was in vain for him to struggle. Here he is now in darkness, we are told in verse 8. He who in pride would have led others captive is an humble captive of Jesus Christ. Christ had every right to come in judgment, but he came to Saul of Tarsus in mercy and called him to himself and called him to apostleship. And the greatest argument that he saw the risen Christ is the argument of a changed life. Again, when you consider who he was, remember who he had been, and you see the change. What change? Well, there's first of all a change in relation to Jesus himself, in relation to believers, brother Saul, the Lord who appeared. Now he's a brother. Now he's a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pliable. He desires communion with God. In verse 11, he prays. In Galatians 6, he tells us that he died to the old way of life. Indeed, he has been raised to a new existence. There's a change in relation to Jesus himself. There's a change in relation to the church when Ananias calls him Brother Saul. And he's with believers in Damascus in verse 19 and other places. And before the apostles, all the way down in verse 27. Indeed, Calvin is right when he says... God's grace is seen not only in such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also his assuming the character of a shepherd. And there is a change in relation to the proclamation of Christ. And this is remarkable indeed. There is Paul persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. You turn one page in your New Testament, and what is he doing? He's preaching Jesus. He's preaching Christ. Powerfully and boldly, look at verses 27 and 28 of this chapter. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. This same Lord, one page back, he had been persecuting and attempting to destroy his people. He's Christ-centered. Look at verses 20 and following. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Look again here in verse 22 at the end. What is he preaching in the synagogues? That Jesus was the Christ. His one life goal now is not to be established in his Phariseeism at the core of his being, but that Christ, who now is at the core of his being, in whom he has put his trust and his faith, be proclaimed. His, his one life's goal now is that the name of Jesus be made famous 
through his proclamation and through his life. And we have a changed relation to God's law. Consider that. Here is the greatest transformation of all, from law to grace. Paul, who had relied upon his works to save him, would later write, By grace are you saved through faith. His whole world had been turned upside down from reliance upon the law as a means of acceptance with God to reliance upon Christ for his acceptance before God. Paul, who had relied upon his works, now relies upon Jesus. And his entire theology and mission is here on this page in a nutshell. If Christ has a people and they do not have to follow the law as a means of acceptance with God, then salvation must not be by law, and it must not be only for the Jew, but also for the Gentiles. His entire theology and mission is here at his conversion. So I ask you the question again, what changed Saul of Tarsus? No one was more committed to salvation by law than was Paul the Apostle before his conversion. And now he is committed to salvation by grace. Now, if you know a man of integrity, and every time he speaks to you, he speaks truth, and time and again you've seen the truthfulness of his life and his statements confirmed, and then he comes to you and tells you something remarkable, you believe him. And Paul is such a man. And not Paul alone, but among the witnesses to the risen Christ were Jesus' brother and the disciples who were at great personal cost spreading the gospel of Jesus and that Jesus was alive and telling the world about him. And Paul tells us that there were over 500 at one time who saw the risen Lord, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote according to 1 Corinthians 15. So how do you account for this? by the good news that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. And those who will not believe it do not believe it because they have an axe to grind. Because our hearts by nature are opposed to this God and we are rebellious and because we do not want this man to rule over us. So here it is. The power of the gospel is demonstrated in Paul's conversion. Adamant Pharisee, careful reasoner, moralist, persecutor of the church, now contrite, abased, living for Christ, serving his people, loving the church, and preaching not only to Jews but to Gentiles. Account for it. Now think of this. To me, this is incredibly powerful. Jesus for Paul was not primarily an example of faith. Jesus was the object of his faith. And if you read the Pauline epistles, and it's true throughout the New Testament, whether in Paul or not, but we're talking about Paul right now, if you read the epistles, you cannot miss that the Apostle Paul believed in the full deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. Now, this is remarkable. If Paul had been a polytheist, that wouldn't be remarkable because he would simply add Jesus to the list of his gods, one God among many. But Paul was no polytheist. 
but he was a Jewish monotheist, and a Jewish monotheist of the most radical and most committed type. He was himself a follower of Gamaliel. He was in the inner circle of Jewish monotheism. And now Paul worships Christ with the worship that belongs to Jehovah alone. Now you account for that. And Peter and the brother of Jesus, James, and the disciples do the same. I ask you the question, how did these Jewish monotheists come to believe that? The answer to the question is because Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave, confirming all of his claims. And all other attempts to explain this fade away. Machen was absolutely right when he said this. It never occurred to Paul that a gospel might be true for one man and not for another. The blight of pragmatism had never fallen upon Paul's soul. Paul was convinced of the objective truth of the gospel message, and devotion to that truth was the great passion of his life. The great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was an historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, He has risen. So there is only one who met death and killed it and rose from the dead. And Paul came to understand this on the road to Damascus. And this is what he writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. So from that empty tomb echoes a voice throughout history calling you and me to bow before this Savior and Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So that Paul the Apostle says in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.